Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Amy Ashbrowski. I'm Steven Zuber. I'm Jay Sticky. And we have another episode for you today. And like all episodes, we start out with the less wrong sequences. Yes? Yay. Sounds fun. And a brief Apparently, disclaimer like that we're recording sequences. remotely due to COVID scares. So, Oh, yeah. Do we want to quickly mention that? I well, guess I just, by the time any, this- any talking over each other like what just happened is largely due to the fact of uh, talking you know, over the internet. So, Yeah, I guess by the time this comes out, people will have already known because it'll be a couple days after um, We Want More should have come out. But uh, we suspect that one of the hosts of We Want More, uh, the one who is not with us right now, uh, has the COVID. Yeah, uh, sometimes I'll line up. That said, I've, and his daughter's uh, school was closed last week due to COVID outbreaks, which is, uh, you know, who could have seen this coming? <laughs> but um, no, I, I mean, he, I think he's he's recovering fine. He's just not, you know, able to sit and talk for two hours without hacking up. So, uh, yeah, we're going to take a week off. I am trying to find content to fill that for tomorrow, but because we're recording on Sunday, uh, the day before, we want more comes out. But it doesn't look like we're going to have anything ready in time. So, uh, yeah, we'll just have to do a week off, which is no big deal. So, But, yeah, then my wife was sick around the same time, which is part of what made this interesting. Uh, But her symptoms weren't quite the same and went away faster. But, you know, presents differently, different people, different durations, etc. So her test came back negative, too, which is good. And I don't feel any shittier than usual, so I don't think I have it. So um, we're just, you know, but still taking it easy. Right, yeah, and hopefully we'll hope, yes. Hopefully we'll hear from uh from Brian today or tomorrow whether his test has come back positive or negative. Maybe it's just like a really bad flu. Yeah, it could be. I mean, I'm texting him, you know, every day just to make sure he's doing all right and to chat, and he's doing good. So, um, you know, as good as one. It's just you know, coughing, sore throat, all that nonsense. Yeah, I mean, it's gonna be really also- disappointing if he dies just before you get to the final exam. <laughs> <laughs> it's gonna be really disappointing in general. <laughs> well, I'm glad yes. you said that because I don't like I haven't actually met Brian, so I feel like I don't get to make fun of him or whatever. But like I've just been listening to uh, my like backlog of podcasts, including We Want More, and I love We Want More. I'm really happy that you guys did that because first of all, like I told you the other day, it's like I'm getting to re enjoy one of my favorite stories. But also, I super did the like. Uh, what was it? The why, but thing, except with Harry, <laughs> like I, I always was just on Harry's side and was like, Harry's such a great character and would defend him. And everybody was like, he's kind of an asshole. And I was just like, no, he's not. It's just all the other characters are so unreasonable. It's interesting to get an outsider's take on it. I think that's what I found the most valuable, like, because not just outsider of like outside the rationalist community, but outsider in the context of somebody who isn't already like, doesn't already enjoy the taste of the Kool-Aid. And yeah, so, um, like I, it's not that I agree with him on everything, but I, I think his perspective is valid and it's, it's enjoyable to, to see where, you know, we lie and where we don't. But yeah, I mean, if I felt like he's at any risk of, you know, uh, his, uh, what, you know, if it's COVID or not, his illness turning dire, I would be much more, uh, somber and serious about it as it is. I think he's, uh, you know, on his, he's on the mend. It's just annoying. So, um, yeah, he'll be fine. Yeah. All right, should we jump into the sequences themselves? Let's do it. All right. First one is uh, Kahneman's planning anecdote. And this one really would have gone good with last week, but we already had three and didn't want to expand it to four. Yeah, this is another sequence related to planning fallacy. My, like, 
biggest weakness in life. <laughs> <laughs> Planning. My old nemesis. Yes. Uh, I, can I, uh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I think one of my biggest weaknesses is aging. If I could <laughs> get over that, I'd have a lot of things figured out. <laughs> I guess I mean of the ones that I can currently work on. There ah, are things okay. you can do with fair aging, but not anything super significant yet. My biggest weakness is that my skin is permeable to bullets and knives. Yeah. <laughs> I was waiting for that. <laughs> Still crack up a bit. Uh, so the, anyway, um, this whole sequence is an excerpt from one of Kahneman's psychology articles called Timid Choices and a Bold Forecast, Cognitive Perspectives on Risk-Taking. And uh, we can link the full paper. I found it. Uh, it's like a 16-page PDF available for free online. I found it on JSTOR, and it's just, I think, open access. But uh, the summary of the ex- excerpt. So uh, in 1976, Kahneman was on a team trying to develop a curriculum on uh, judgment and decision-making under uncertainty for Israeli high school students. And after a year, the team met to discuss how long they thought this project was going to take to finish. And Kahneman wanted to make the conversation more productive, uh, which I appreciate. (laughs) So he had everybody write down how long they thought it was going to take before they had a complete draft ready for the Ministry of Education. And he says the estimates, including his own, ranged from 18 to 30 months. So then he asks one of the members who was an expert in curriculum development. So you've been doing this for a long time. In your experience, how long did other teams like ours take to complete their projects? (laughs) And the expert says of the ones he could think of, 40% never finished. For the rest, he couldn't think of any that took less than seven years or more than 10 years. And also, he adds, Kahneman's team seems slightly below average in resources and potential. And the great part is is that he says that uh, 40% chance of failure and then taking at least seven years, neither of these were outcomes that were an acceptable basis for continuing the project. Yeah, And right. so they ignored this. <laughs> Yeah, it says it was so demoralizing that they just ignored the experts' forecast and also stopped attempting any long-term planning. (laughs) And so the end of the excerpt is the project eventually reached completion eight years later. (laughs) However, in the comments uh, in the the original Less Wrong post, someone wrote, there exists a curriculum for the study of judgment and decision-making under uncertainty for high schools. Somebody spent eight years developing it. Where can we get this curriculum? And in reply, somebody else linked to an article review of Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow, which uh, oh. I took a little clip out of. Part of the pleasure of this book is Kahneman's willingness to incorporate counterarguments. He inspects his own misjudgments, including a painful decade sunk into a committee work for a high school textbook that never saw daylight and who oh. led the project. So apparently it actually never saw daylight after all that. That is... It's oh, like they f- they finished it, but seven years after the planning window, and no one wanted to buy it when they were done or something. Yeah, as a couple other people pointed out, that the curriculum's going to be out of date now. Yeah, that's a good point. But like, I guess at, it, it at least um, informed his writing on thinking fast and slow. So yeah, maybe, and <laughs> maybe planning a curriculum way. is way harder than writing a book, but like, it shouldn't take. I, well, <laughs> I was about to say it shouldn't take that long, but I'm not even <laughs> an industry expert. So what's funny is like. You know, if, if we're sitting down for a planning meeting at my job and someone's like, all right, well, the goal is try and get us out end of Q1 next year. You know, what do you think we can get done in that time? 
I don't think that like an acceptable answer would be, I don't think this is possible. Um, <laughs> like, so I wonder how much of that is just kind of inherited from like the work environment to where saying that I don't think this is even doable um, or that like, Hey, look, I looked at the numbers, you know, like imagine you're sitting down with your friends to do a startup or something. And they're like, all right, well, what do you think the odds are of us getting to market by the end of the year? And I think that if you're the person who points out, be like, you know, 80% of these never make it, you know, past the whatever, like even to the alpha phase, right? I don't think that they would let you come to the next meeting. But <laughs> I think the difference um, between a startup I, where that's kind of like understood, though, that like that's the risk you're taking versus like something like this sounded like kind of more run of the mill. Could be column A, col- little column A, little column B. I think, I mean, the only startup I've worked at is a fairly, uh, like robust one and i got in you know six years in but um you know at the beginning it's it was funded by one guy who was paying you know three engineering salaries so like he clearly was at least gambling with uh the confidence that this would go to somewhere because he was spending hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to get it going right Mm -hmm. but you know if it's you and your friends doing it in part-time that's different uh but trying to like actually sit down and start a company and with payroll and i don't know I, I just, I, I've got to think that once you put your, not just like 50 bucks, but something like $300,000 a year into it, you're thinking, okay, yeah, this, this better go somewhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, of course too, if you're getting paid, you'll overcome some of the stumbling blocks that probably stop hobby projects from reaching completion. Yeah. Just trying to imagine working on something for 10 years and then having nothing to show for it afterwards. It's like my career in the video game industry. <laughs> <laughs> Now there are a few games that came out. They just none of them ever like hit it really big. The real guess, victory was the friends you made along the way. Yeah, womp. Or the stuff you learned along the way. Yeah. Maybe not the work in the video games industry. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of work. It's probably like that though. Like I mean, with accounting, you're just doing the same damn thing every quarter, and then the numbers go away and don't matter anymore. I I would assume like anything where you're working on an assembly line or extracting resources you don't see the finished product, Jack. You're just kind of doing the same thing every day. I guess maybe most jobs are like that. Or after 10 years, it feels like you haven't really done anything aside from getting paid. I felt way more satisfied that I was like being useful to humanity when I was working like a food service job than when I was in the games industry. It would have been different if I was making games that people love that were really popular, but we switched from like a model of trying to make like, uh, dungeon crawlers and tank games and like web game stuff to clickbait mobile game bullshit that i first of all i was like we're making like slot machines which is just exploiting people's psychology you're not even giving them a cool product in return and then secondly like you know when you're working in food service it's like well at least i'm providing people with food which is one of the like basic necessities of life yeah, I think the most profitable mobile game is uh, Clash of Clans. And I think it just hit eight years on the market. And I'm not sure what it's made, but some billions of dollars. And like comparing it to like the slot machine, random, you know, nonsense uh, cash grab apps that people just, you know, generate, put out for a month, try and make some money and then start on the next one. Like this one at least offers a game underneath and all the paid stuff is optional. So like it's not pay to win or pay to play. It's just pay to fast track which you don't have to do so um like i don't know i think that the i still don't get the psychology though i tried playing it and i was just like this there's nothing fun here oh yeah i mean i feel like those kind of farming game uh type things where like 
it's basically a resource management game, but then the fact that you can also pay to get ahead like means that people are playing it in order to compete with friends, I guess. Yes, uh, but I mean, I think the main difference between like it and Farmville is that you get to build armies and attack other people's bases, and so like there's there's actually like a game component to it that isn't just click. Yeah. Um, so but like, like I mean, it's it's not a it's not a stellar you know triple A game that I recommend to anybody. But I'm just thinking of as far as successful mobile games that aren't at least complete crash grabs. Um, they at least put work in to make it an actual game, even if that isn't like the main draw. I want to create a game called Complete Cash Grab, where you pay $5 to attack like someone else on the map, and then they defend themselves by paying dollars, and whoever spends the most dollars wins. There was an app briefly on the App Store, I think, called, like, I Am Very Rich. Yes. Yeah, I remember and, that. Yeah. The the 30-second version, or the 10-second version is that basically it cost, I think, $50,000, and when you open the app, it displayed a picture of a diamond that said, I'm very rich underneath. And I think the guy sold three of these. Oh, he actually sold some. Yeah, probably to teenagers in Dubai. Nice. Which I, I mean, I like. That's the thing is, this thing would have taken a few days to spit out and get approved by Apple. Uh, the fact that it got approved at all, tra- they changed the rules, and you can't do that anymore. But, um, like, yeah, just make a quick hundred fifty k, and uh, Jesus, I mean, yeah. That, yeah, that sounds awesome. Do you, I, I mean, was, sorry, my what? brother, my brother got a quick twenty dollars, or I guess half of that. Did do you guys use the uh, the Google survey thing at all? No. Every now and then, like roughly once a week, sometimes twice, they'll send you like a few quick questions. And for oh, every yeah. question, yeah, for every question you answer, you get between five and ten cents, and each one only takes a few seconds. And you know, I've been doing it for a while, and you can you don't actually get money; you get Wait, Google Play Google? credits. Oh, okay, yeah. Because I was going to say uh, I've done Mechanical Turk, but that's oh, okay. Different. Yeah, no, Google Play credits is oftentimes based on like, hey, where have you been recently? What did you spend money on? It's uh, and you don't get money. You get Google Play credits, and I've used some of the credits before to like you know rent a movie or whatever. But I was, uh, if you don't use them within a year, they go away. And I was like at twenty five dollars in credits, and they were starting to go away as fast as I was earning them, just because I like didn't really have anything to spend them on. I'm like, I don't want anything from the Google Play Store. I don't really. want this crap. <laughs> yeah, I I bought a podcaster which I really liked, and then I haven't yeah needed any other shit. And so uh, my brother, who does you know uh, web development now, uh, I told him, look, just put something real quick on Google Play for twenty dollars, and I'll buy it, and you'll get you know the commission you can get from that. <laughs> and so he made an app that does nothing and called it like the useless app or the app that does nothing or something, and I bought it. <laughs> and so now he Wait, has some of that money. Because my money was, then oh, my Google oh, Play credits were literally going away, and I would rather they go to my brother than to just disappear. Yeah, sorry, I'm, I, sorry, I misunderstood what you're saying, but that's that's actually really funny. Yeah, that was that was kind of kind of cool. You know, he could turn that into like an actual service until he got shut down. And be like, <laughs> hey, you know, you can you can buy money with my app that costs nothing to download, but then you spend Google credits on it. And or no, it needs to be through the purchase of the app, doesn't it? Yeah. Although poss- perhaps you could buy like in-app tokens or something. Yeah, right? but then he'd have to like put more work into it. This was something that he just threw together in no, 20 no. Minutes. But th- then I'm saying he advertises it as saying get you know 90 percent of your uh, Google coins back as cash, and that could be his service. And then he'd just Venmo the people the money, 90 percent oh. of the money, and keep 10 percent for himself for his trouble. That could way work. Off track, but I do want to we- point out that there's a business that will give you back most of the money of your gift cards that you receive for like holidays or birthdays, which I saw that I saw a guy pitching that on shark tank. I thought that was kind of funny. Oh yeah. No, that's a thing. Uh, and it's hilarious that 
that is a service that people need and use, but it's, you know, we're not on topic. No. Yeah. Okay. In that case, we should go on because we could, we could just keep talking forever. I'll restrain myself and drag us back into conjunction fallacy. Huzzah. Does anybody else, like, when I was reading this one and the conjunction controversy, it was like the conjunction junction song was just stuck in my head. <laughs> yes. Schoolhouse rock. It wasn't when I read it, but now that you have said it, it will be forever after. Uh, so the conjunction fallacy yeah. is a, a whole bunch of examples, and I'm only going to pull out two quick ones so that we can cover what it is. Uh, it starts out with Bill. Bill is 34 years old. He's intelligent, but unimaginative, compulsive, and generally lifeless. In school, <laughs> he was strong in math, but weak in social studies and humanities. And then the, it gives you a series of statements about Bill, and you have to rank them in order of how likely they are. Uh, the I'm going to ignore most of them. The three important ones are, is Bill is an accountant. Bill plays jazz for a hobby. Bill is an accountant who plays jazz for a hobby. And the interesting thing is that the vast majority of subjects indicated that Bill was more likely to be an accountant than an accountant who played jazz, but he was more likely to be an accountant who played jazz than a jazz player, which if you think about it for a while, either Bill is an accountant or Bill plays jazz for a hobby has to be either one of those more likely than Bill is an accountant who plays jazz, jazz for a hobby. Cause you're any, any subset of people who are accountants or who play jazz is not going to be 100%. Or even if they are, it, it would at most be equal, right? There would be no world in where it's more likely for someone to be an accountant who plays jazz than to just be someone who plays jazz. Yeah. Um, and the thing that Eliezer was pointing out was these people were supposed to rank these six propositions by probability, mm-hmm. starting with most and ending with least. And then he points out the the conjunction rule of probability theory <laughs> states that for all X and Y, P of X and Y is going to be uh, less than or equal to yeah. Yeah. Uh, P of Y. So the probability of X and Y are simultaneously true that X and Y are simultaneously true is always less than or equal to the probability that Y is true. Violating this rule is called a conjunction fallacy. And yet when you give people these kinds of like thought experiment sorts of things, like here's this guy, Bill, he's like this. Uh, People aren't thinking about probability, but there's a psychology thing that happens. Well, uh, I don't know if any, if you wanted to like explain more of the, uh, yeah, we. I'll give a couple more examples that were uh, that yeah. were given in this. Uh, another one was uh, considering a regular six-sided dice that has four green and two red sides. It's going to be rolled twenty times, and you have to select a sequence from a set of three that might show up. And if it shows up, you win twenty-five dollars. And one of the sequences options was red, green, red, red, red. And since green is on uh, four out of the six and red is on two out of the six, that's fairly unlikely. But, you know, out of enough rolls, maybe that would eventually happen. Uh, Another one of the options was green, red, green, red, red, red. And if you'll notice a thing about these two, uh, it's not immediately apparent. But if you stop to look at it for a second, red, green, red, red, red is strictly a subset of green, red, green, red, red, red. Because the second one is just the first one with green in front of it. So in any sequence, in any uh, sequence of die rolls, 
if number two appears, number one will have have to have appeared as well. Uh, but number one could appear without number two appearing. Uh, yet, nonetheless, 65% of subjects chose sequence two. Uh, in in theory, because this seems to be more representative of the die, since it has a higher ratio of green to red sides, and the dice has a higher ratio of green to red sides. Uh, but again, strictly wrong, because there's no way you could get to without getting through number one uh, and an extra condition on top of that as well. Yeah, so it's almost the analog of the thing about Bill the Accountant, mm-hmm. where sort of... If you think about, yeah, like the word representativeness, people are kind of like, instead of thinking in terms of probability theory, they're kind of thinking in terms of representativeness and like pattern matching. Yeah. Or is, the is second what's going on? Yeah, the second one feels fair because it looks more like it's got more more of a balance between green and red. And so at a non-probabilistic intuition at it, you're thinking, well... If I had to guess, I would say there'd be some number of greens and some number of reds. And the first one looks too red heavy. So I'll say I'll say two, where it has a couple of greens and the same number of reds. But yeah, that's uh, it. It is just the exact same pattern of one with a green uh, with a green before it, and that it's funny. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking too about the the bill example. I remember when I first learned about this in high school, it was like I forget it was Linda or Alice or some you know nineteen seventies girl name. And it was like, Alice is a feminist who is also a librarian or something. You know, they give okay. some vague description. But, and uh, if you want to wait just a little bit, that's literally the next post. Oh, is that right? Yeah, that was but one you I can go ahead and... reading yet. Oh, that's the one. Yeah, perfect. Okay, yep. I will skip it. That, anyway, that one did appear in my high school textbook. Um, yeah. What so, was your experience with it when it went? Or maybe we should wait to you can tell us. Yeah, we'll, we'll hold off and see if I can summon any memories from high school that are like uh, not whatever, or that are autobiographical rather than just like data. But yeah, the third example is my favorite. It's easy to summarize because uh, it, it's, it feels less abstract, like mathy somehow than the first two. Um, cer- certainly the second one feels like, you know, you have almost have to do math to see it, even though you really don't. Um, but the, the third example was uh, 1983 uh, or published in 1983 um, and it was conducted in 1982 at the International Congress of Forecasting. Uh, the experimental subjects were 115 professional analysts employed by employed by industry universities or research institutes. Two different experimental groups were respectively asked to rate the probability of two different statements, each group seeing only one statement. One, a complete suspension of diplomatic relations between the USA and the Soviet Union sometime in 1983. And two, a Russian invasion of Poland and a complete suspension of dip- diplomatic relations between the USA and the Soviet Union sometime in 1983. So you had two groups, each were asked one of those questions and asked, how likely do you think this is? Um, the estimates of probability for both were or were low for both, but significantly lower for the first group than the second. Um, which, again, if you were able to see both at the same time, you would see how, how insane that is. Because a complete suspension of diplomatic relations between USA and Soviet Union could happen for any number of reasons. But since two gave a reason, it just sounds more plausible. Oh, here's an explanation. Yeah, that sounds likely. Okay, yeah. So I would think it would, you know, suspend disbelief or suspend diplomatic relations or whatever. Um, yeah, and that's the uh, moral. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Adding more detail I, or extra assumptions can make an event seem more plausible, even though the event necessarily becomes less probable. And then it ends. Do you have a favorite futurist? How many details do they track under their amazing futuristic predictions? And I feel like I must have talked about this before because it sounds so familiar, but I remember 
watching something with Michio Kaku on TV like 10 years ago. <laughs> and he was talking about how like, oh yeah, in 2030, we're going to have like interactive wallpaper that'll be your TV and your your uh, your tablets and all this stuff be all over your house. And um, there were there were a couple other things that he tacked into it. But what I found surprising, like, and didn't really articulate at the time, but looking back when I remembered it, it was like, okay, so not only have you said we're going to have this exact stuff, but it'll do these things. And this is when we'll have it. Why not just say at some point in the future, or maybe we'll have something like this, but it, it was very finite. I mean, he didn't straight up come out and say it, you know, at six thirty in the morning on December 21st, you know, 2030, <laughs> we're going to launch this product, but he almost did. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was like, maybe a little disappointed that they didn't get more into the psychology of why we think this way. Cause I like, when you do the first example, it's kind of like, okay, well you can think that we're giving some details about this guy, Bill, and then here's more details. And if you think of, okay, well maybe humans, when they're modeling other humans are thinking of a story or they're, they're thinking of stereotypes of people like the feminist librarian one makes that one seem more obvious because you're like stereotypes about librarians or just like likelihoods about someone who is a librarian is likely to, you know, they probably have a master's degree. They're probably well-educated and, but like, but then well, it's we, the, the ones about the politics and the like probability of the dice doesn't, you, you're not telling a story in your head about dice. <laughs> so it really seems to be something that like in the math part of our brain that's broken that way. Well, if we want to get into the next post that yeah. specifically does uh, mention why this happens, not mention, but explain why this happens. Or how they nail it down. Yes. This one is called conjunction controversy and then parentheses or how they nail it down. And, uh, boy, this was a long one. Uh, I'm going to skip a lot of it, but there was just a lot of discussion about methodology and various uh, ways that they tried to test this thing and different techniques that they used, uh, like at one point, even just straight up asking people what they were thinking. But uh, if you're interested in all the details, they are there and it is, you know, it's kind of interesting to read through it. But we want to get more to the meat of the things, which starts out with Linda, which, uh, Stephen, would you like to take it away since you're familiar with Linda? Sure. Linda is 31-year-old, single, outspoken, and very bright. She majored in philosophy. As a student, she is deeply concerned with the issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Uh, Also, this was uh, in 1982. Um, Or no, it appears in 1982 book. When when was this conducted? It doesn't say. Um, I'm going to guess in the 80s. Anyway. Uh, please rank, yeah. Please rank the following statements by the probability using one for the most probable and eight for the least probable. And I'm going to go through them quickly just because, uh, just to make the point. So remember, we've got an outspoken, very bright philosophy major who was concerned with the discrimination and social justice and participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. So one, Linda is a teacher in elementary school. Linda works in a bookstore and takes yoga classes. Linda is active in the feminist movement. Linda is a, is a psychiatric social worker. Linda is a member of the League of Women Voters. Linda is a bank teller. Linda is an insurance salesperson. Linda is a big bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. And so uh, the funny thing is that I can't remember which one is without reading it again, which is the highest voted, but the last one was voted higher than uh, Linda is active in the feminist movement. The last one was Linda is a bank teller and active in the feminist movement. 
And I think this one is easier to illustrate the point of at least part of what's happening because you, you've got this, this model of Linda now. She, you know, philosophy major, outspoken, concerned social justice, participated in nuclear, anti-nuclear demonstrations. And to hear that she's a bank teller, you're like, well, that doesn't sound like the Linda I know that I learned about 10 seconds ago. Yeah. Um, but then if you say, oh, and she's also in the feminist movement, you're like, oh, okay, that sounds likely. Um, maybe it wasn't more likely than... Let me see here. I should it was, actually read if, it. If you, do the, if you look at the actual ratings, uh, the most likely was that she's an active feminist. Second most likely was she's a bank teller and active and feminist. And least likely it was she's a bank teller. Right. That's right. Yeah. But they but they still put that at higher than... Uh, yeah, than just, the, just active in the feminist movement. Bank right. teller and active was more likely, according to people. No, bank teller and active was more likely than just bank teller. Yeah, that's what I'm... Oh, okay. And uh, do you do you remember they had six point two for that one? Yes, uh, eight is least probable. One is most probable. Okay. So the scale is kind of reversed. Right. Or the lower the number, the more probable something is. Uh, Stephen, do you remember like when you came across this, how you felt about it, or how your class reacted, or anything? I don't. Um, it's hard to distinguish any memories I'm trying to conjure from ones I'm making up. Um, if I I'm running with my intuition that my memory is, uh, you know, give it 30% chance that this actually happened. I seem to have some inkling of her memory of people saying, like, of people defending their decision that uh, the eighth one was likely, um, or like likelier than just being a bank teller. Um, and I think because for using the same sort of like uh, psychoanalysis reasons I was using earlier, right? Where it's like, well, no, but it said that she had all these things. It's like, yeah, sure. But the odds of that person turning out to be possibly just a bank teller are non-zero. And so uh, any any world where she's a bank teller and in the feminist movement would mean that she's also a bank teller. And so like there's, I think the easiest way, and I don't, I don't know if he does this in this long post because I didn't read this one. Nope, a line graph, no Venn diagrams. I think yeah. that either Venn diagrams or just circles with epicycles inside are the easiest way to illustrate this, right? Mm-hmm. You've got the whole space of, possibilities of what she what she did and in one circle you've got uh linda as a bank teller and inside that because it has to be inside that uh inside the bank teller circle is linda's bank teller and something else right yeah um so you can have the in the feminist movement as a bigger circle but it's only going to be partially overlapping with the bank teller one uh like it it's it's easier to visualize with a whiteboard (laughs) right no matter how big the feminist movement circle is and how small the bank teller circle is, their uh, intersection will always be equal to or smaller than the bank teller circle because it just has to be. Exactly. And that's that's actually a good way to think about it. Yeah, the, the circle where they intersect can't be bigger than one of the circles. Yeah. So um, the he goes through a whole lot of uh, why people make this mistake and eventually the researchers came to the conclusion that subjects substitute judgment of representativeness for judgment of probability, which means uh, their feelings of similarity between each of the propositions and Linda's description determines how plausible it feels that each of the propositions is true of Linda. Uh, Since Linda more closely resembles a feminist than a feminist bank teller, uh, that one is more likely, but she more closely remem- resembles a feminist bank teller than just a bank teller, which is why that one feels more likely. And Eliezer asks, maybe that's our theory, but how could we possibly know that that is the case? 
And he said the answer was you take a different group of subjects and just ask them how much each of the propositions resembles Linda and then compare uh, their their ratings of how much each proposition resembles Linda to how likely each person in the earlier group said uh, each uh, thing was each statement was likely to be. Uh, and he shows that this was done and the correlation between the two groups on representativeness and probability was nearly perfect. 0.99, almost a, stratflate, a, a, almost a uh, straight line. So um, yeah, it was, it was because people were thinking exactly that, that she looks more like a feminist than a feminist bank teller, but more like a feminist bank teller than a bank teller, even though if you were thinking with math, you would see how, how wrong that actually is. I love it. And what's fun is like, that's the kind of like, uh, I don't know, mm, creative approach to like, how do you, again, how do you, okay, well, this is what we think it is. How could we possibly test it? That's a very creative answer, like to approach that problem. And that's why I, I really liked the field enough to go to, go to school and learn more about it. Um, yeah, there's, that, that kind of creative problem approach. There's a few ways that they tried to test, like just to really make sure that this bias was happening too. Um, where, it was in the previous one too. It was a uh, this is the to make sure that people weren't just misunderstanding the word probability. They were that was why they were. Uh, this is really long. <laughs> yeah, it really is. He makes a, a similar example. They did the same thing with um, doctors judging what symptoms are likely. Yeah, yeah to, uh, to well, present. Was, well, they they did the bet part to make sure that people weren't just misunderstanding what was meant by probability, mm. and then. Uh, they said, well, it might have just been that people were thinking B to mean only B and not A. And so that was the one with the doctors where they worded the instructions, the probability they will be among the conditions experienced by the patient. And then an explicit reminder, the patient could experience more than one of these conditions. Yeah. And, and they still still ran into the conjunction fallacy, but then also found the uh, the uh, the probability rank and representative rank exceeded 95% when they did the, the secondary test. Yeah. Uh, I still wish that they had gotten into like, I think without, I'm sorry, go ahead. Why? Or it's not some hypotheses of why our brains might be wired like this. Maybe it is just that we think of everything as like people and having a story, the way like sort of animism works, where even if you're thinking about a, a die or dice, awkward plurals in English, uh, you're still kind of thinking about, well, the red guy and the green guy, <laughs> I don't know. It's, it, it hasn't been six in a while. It's bound to be six. One of these times is the kind is yeah. like just yeah. a super natural way to think that, a super but natural, but why. wrong way to think about die. Right. You could see why you might think that about some things in nature though. Yeah. No, I mean, for sure. I think that it's, I, I don't know. Like it doesn't get into, into here much, but without treading into the waters of evolutionary psychology, I think that that's about as far as we can get. I think it's, uh, understandable how our brains didn't evolve to do math and so it, it evolved to say well how how reasonable does that sound um and reasonableness doesn't necessarily relate to mathematics in our apish brains right yeah i mean we did kind of evolve to be like human pattern matchers since i think we were primarily like our own worst enemy <laughs> yeah. i mean we're, we're social manipulators and as well, or that that still makes it seem bad. I'm trying not to put a value judgment in there. Like we 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 evolved mostly to understand and work well with one another because we're social species. There, um, 
there's then, a lot like, of PVP in our human experience. And, and uh, yeah, <laughs> the like second half though of the sequence is just, I think Eliezer actually uses the phrase like hammering it, it down or yeah, well, he says nailing it down, but uh, why do I keep hammering on this? Well, it's because this fallacy, the conjunction fallacy, he says was probably the single most, most questioned biased ever introduced, which means it now ranks among the best replicated. Uh, yeah, I like that. He he says he c- continues saying questioning in science calls forth answers and links uh, that over to the proper use of doubt uh, sequence post. Yeah, which which is a great thing about science. How you yeah. th- this is how you summon answers by questioning things. It is almost an eldritch ritual. I emphasize this because it seems when I talk about biases, especially to audiences not previously familiar with the field. A lot of people want to be charitable to the experimental subjects, but it's not only experimental subjects who deserve charity. Uh, he says scientists can also be unstupid. <laughs> <laughs> someone yeah, else has already thought of your alternative interpretation. Someone else may have already devised an experiment to test it. Maybe more than one. Yeah, and I wonder if it's when you read these kind of studies, uh, psychological studies, it often feels like you're trying to trick people. Hmm. And that's why I like oh that these like these subjects didn't know what was going on and these scientists tricked them and like I've I've got to defend them. Yeah. I don't know. I've encountered that attitude before uh, and that's weird where like oh well studies show this. It's like well the people probably were doing this this and this in the study, you know, they didn't realize that the researchers were going to blah blah blah. I just, you know, like I think you're misunderstanding the point of this. <laughs> yeah. So I mean on the one hand, I totally agree with him, especially, well, okay, so real quick, he also says, like, a blank map is not a blank territory. If you don't know whether someone has tested it, that doesn't mean no one has tested it. And it, and so all this, all the sequences were written before the um, replication crisis, which it, it kind of makes the whole thing a little, it puts it in a different light because... Yes, he's he is correct, and lots of these things have been multiple times tested and uh, and verified. But there's also a number of things which weren't and were just accepted as common wisdom. And when the replication crisis hit and people started trying to replicate this stuff, they fell apart. And I think a lot of people nowadays are a bit more more wary about things because specifically because of that things that they were told were. Where rock solid turned out not to be so much. Yeah, we'll, we'll like, have to get a psychologist. Sorry, I was just going to say we'll have to get a psychologist on at some point who knows all the modern stuff. I've got somebody in mind if they're interested to talk about ooh, like. Cool. So you, you use the word fall apart. I think more like things are shown to have holes in them. Like I, yes. I, I don't know how much of the edifice of our last century of knowledge, especially like in social psych, completely fell to pieces. Like whether right. or not you can get somebody to sit in a room filling with smoke uh, because. Uh, you know, a uh, bystander effect or whatever um, that there, there might be reasons explaining what was going wrong with how that experiment was done in the, whatever decade it took place in, but bystander effect is still probably definitely a real thing with or without that experiment. And we can devise better ones that have demonstrated the same thing, but like that one in particular doesn't replicate or has problems with it. Right. Yeah. Well, like the conjunction fallacy and specifically, he says it's one of the most questioned biases ever, and uh, which is why it has so much replications and so much uh, proof behind it. But there were lots of other things that like it turned out were just researchers literally manipulating people, like in the case of the, um, what was it, the Stanford prison experiment? 
Right. And yeah, there were there were some that were just like really bad methodology from the very beginning where someone was just trying to make a point uh, and didn't care what kind of trickery they had to do to make it. Yeah, it's um I think it's worth noting that from what I remember of like this period of the rationality community, I, a lot of people were talking about this and I think in the scientific community too, although I wasn't part of that at the time, but like people, you see Eliezer being like, science is great because we can replicate this stuff. And like, we can know things about the world because the, you know, like there are facts about the way the universe is that we can test and we can retest and what like, actually caused the replication crisis was more of the publisher parish sort of mm-hmm. model that we pursue science through where there's no prestige really to be had for replicating studies. Like grant money is going to people discovering new things and, and negative also, results never get published. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cause they aren't sexy, but it's still like, it's still human biases that are causing us to get the, the wrong results, which is, mm-hmm why I, you know, I'm not sure what point I'm trying to make here. I guess I'm just... I Well, I got this... Um, I, I like the way he expressed the frustration at the end here. He says, it does become a little frustrating sometimes to know about this overwhelming mountain of evidence that from thousands of experiments, but other people have no clue that it exists. After all, if there are other experiments supporting the result, why haven't they heard of them? It's a small tribe. Surely they would have heard. By the same token, I have to make a conscious effort to remember that other people don't know about the evidence, and they aren't deliberately ignoring it in order to annoy me. Which is why it gets a little frustrating sometimes. We just aren't built for worlds of six billion people. It's a very big tribe. But at the very end, he does say, I'm not saying, of course, that people should stop asking questions. If you stop asking questions, you'll never find out about the mountains of experimental evidence. Faith is not understanding, only belief in a password. So, yeah, don't stop asking. Keep looking. Try to replicate and disconfirm and shit. Yeah, yeah. but in good faith. <laughs> yes. Not because it, you don't like where the evidence is going or something. Yeah. The uh, the the whole ending, the whole second half of this sequence post kind of reminded me also of Alexander's, uh, Scott Alexander's uh, post. Yes, we've noticed the skulls. <laughs> where uh, <laughs> yeah. he talks about um, the researchers saying, yes, we, we are f- aware of these things that people keep pointing out to us. Mm, yeah. But yeah, that was that. Was that. Anyone was. have anything else to say about this? No, it's fun. I always, I always enjoy this stuff. And there's plenty to read about, like with the history of, of this field of research. And uh, I mean... I guess you can, I, I was going to try and like recommend a book, but I can't remember quite the title of one of my favorites that I read uh, that wasn't recommended to me from anything in the rationalist sphere. It was just like, I came across it in a library and it was like great 20th or great experiments of the 20th century or something. And this woman tried to go through and like, like in her own investigation, tried to replicate as many as possible. And uh, none of them, I can't remember anything related to conjunction fallacy in there, but it was just fun. Like I, I find the, uh, the 1900s to be like the most, one of the most fruitful, probably the most, I don't know, whatever, uh, fruitful decade or centuries of social psychological research. Right. Um, I think it was in the early 1900s when like they first tried to test, like how many words can a small child remember or something like just basic shit about people. 
And we went all the way from that to, all right, well, now we've got some basic idea of how people work. Oh, how do they not work? And that stuff started to come up at like 1950s and later. And it was really cool. And so there are a few book links at the end of this, but they're all Kahneman and Tversky. But no doubt they link to other books and their uh, own citations and essays. So there's lots to look into here. Look, lots to look into here if you find this stuff interesting. Yeah. There's kind of an interesting conversation in the comments as well about the disparity between um, psychologists suggesting that people should trust their instincts, but then also like being aware of biases. Yeah, it's a tough balancing act for sure. But I don't have anything else to add, so we can roll on if you want. Sure. Our posts, uh, sequence posts for next time will be burdensome details and what is evidence? And also, should I mention the thing that I have been talked into doing at this point? Yes. Actually, I was going to bring it up earlier because when we were saying this one's really long, so I'll just skip to it. (laughs) I was going to say, but... Ah, okay. All right. So um, on the TBC Discord, uh, a couple of people, one in particular keeps asking me about this. Uh, shout out to you, Weiweaker. This is all for you. <laughs> um, uh, people keep asking me to like read the sequences and I'm like, but there's already two podcasts, two podcasts that we link in every single episode that read the sequences for free. And uh, there was there was just like, some desire to actually have me read them, I guess, because people have gotten used to my voice and or like me or something. And I was like, well, oh, someone asked specifically again, why we could ask, look, can I pay you to do this so that like it wouldn't be just such a terrible uh, imposition to you? And I was like, sure, I guess I, I would I would read a post for 20 bucks. And he's like, all right. I'm on it. Just put up something so that I can get this money to you. I was like, oh, God, okay. So, anyways, I have now created a commission a sequence read page on the uh, Basin Conspiracy uh, website. Uh, there is a list of every single um, less wrong sequence and uh, a way to PayPal me $20 if you want to do that thing. And I will read one of them and put it up. And I can probably do between one and three a week, depending on like how busy I am with other stuff in my life. Um, so please don't like swamp me or anything. And again, there there is other podcasts already doing this, so you don't <laughs> need to pay me. But if you would like to, uh, I will be happy to do that thing for you guys for twenty dollars or even ten dollars for like the really short ones. Uh, so yeah, there'll be a link included in this episode. And uh, I guess thanks in advance to anyone who does that. You've also already done a handful on the Methods of Rationality podcast yeah. feed. Yes, those are also already included um, in the initial page. And uh, the sponsor on those is just marked as hpmor.com. And yeah, if you do pay money for this thing, your name or who, whatever you want me to put in the sponsored by uh, space will be included on the website forever or until the website goes down. I was going to make a joke, but I don't think anyone would want me to do them, but I could just threaten to do them. <laughs> and they, if, if you don't have Inyash do it, I will do it. And then the world will be much worse off. So <laughs> Nice. Holding them for ransom. <laughs> so my question uh, is, Inyash, will, will you read other things for money? <laughs> uh, sh- sure, I suppose so. <laughs> All right, we've got them. I don't have anything in particular in mind. Just, I just love this idea. But you can bet we'll find something terrible for you to read. Now you have to. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I I have Argon. Oh, God. I I mean, it starts to... With stuff that's copyrighted, there um, is the question of actually getting the permission of the uh, current rights holder. So there's that. 
Uh, the sequences are easy because Eliezer has already publicly said, feel free to do what you want with this, guys. All righty, shall we move on? Yes, what are we talking about for our main topic this week at Inyash? Well, that is a good question because, I don't know, over the past few weeks, uh, I, I in particular have been kind of down and full of anxiety, and I think it's in large part due to the election. I don't know how you guys have been feeling. Have you guys been feeling the same way? Oh, yeah. You know, it, it's been a bummer, too, because I've been watching, like, uh, I mean, everything has been talking about it, but the last month of SNL, nonstop openers about the debates or whatever, and watched uh, last night's episode, and it's just wall-to-wall election stress. And, uh, you know, it's weird, like, I don't know, the, the malaise you're talking about, man. Like, looking back, like, this all feels like, oh, yeah, remember how this was, like, a... I mean, it just seems like yesterday where we were talking about, oh my God, can you believe the outcome of the election? And then it's like, oh yeah, like three times a week, this insane bullshit. You know, like yesterday, the president tweeted out a video of those trucks full of Texans harassing that Biden bus that they eventually ran off the road. And- uh, Whoa, I didn't hear about that. Well, he tweeted out the- vi- He didn't tweet out the video of them running them off the road, but they- uh, and harassing the vehicle. Well, the, it was the harassment video that he posted. Anyway, he posted in all caps, I love Texas. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, this is the the president and it stresses me out. And it, you know, part of me thinks it shouldn't, but part of me, that part of me gets tired um, and gets stressed out anyway. And so like, then you, but like that, this, the reason to hear about it, because three things like this happen every fucking week. And now we look back and realize it's been happening. This has been going on for years. And it just like, the whole world has been this exhausting and stressful nonstop. Um, I don't know, man. We kind of try to avoid politics on this podcast sometimes. Do Usually, <laughs> I don't know. I guess not. We don't focus on it specifically. I guess we don't actually try to avoid it. It's kind of weird, though, because right. by the time this comes out, like the election results will already be known, hopefully. Uh, not really. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like, it's like, so because of the, the increase in, in mail-in ballots, like... I don't think we're going to have a winner on Tuesday night. We're going to have mm. a prospective winner. And like, th- I mean, the other thing to keep in mind here too, is that like Trump could lose the election, but still fight to retain his seat in office. Right. The thing and- is, if, if we don't have a winner by Tuesday night, it'll be because it wasn't so fucking overwhelming and obvious that he lost that we have to keep counting votes. And to me, that in itself is a bit of a defeat because like we really need him to lose that hard. Uh, just send a message to the Republican Party. You know, don't do this don't shit do this again. Shit. <laughs> yeah. Don't. Well, I, I guess. Uh, I mean, and I we'll mean, all see. This this is all perspective. I, I tell you what, we can make a wager. Who wants to bet that there'll be a declared winner on Wednesday by the time this episode comes out? I'll no, bet- I, I don't want to bet on that. I'm just saying that uh, I I would consider that already a a lesser win, uh, a, a bit of a defeat already. I mean, Biden could be ahead by 15 million votes on Tuesday night, but there's, I don't think that a concession is going to happen on Trump's side, right? Um, they, he would he would push it off for weeks and months while it was fought in court and then debate, you know, uh, challenging the results and uh, making it this whole fuck all mess where then once it comes out, once all the, you know, votes are counted and they don't try and do an Al Gore thing or they can't because he's lost by too much, then he'll just, you know, uh, sue a whatever the the committees that are counting these and drag this out for years, right? Um, I hope he sues individual voters for not voting for him. 
Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't put it past him if he thought he could get away with it. Yeah. So I guess it, it, it sucks because like everyone's saying, oh, yeah, no, vote him out. Well, I'll get this over with. And I don't I don't see it happening. I see like, I mean, and everyone probably by now has heard, but like Walmart in the U.S. stopped selling guns. Um, oh, really? This week. Yeah. I think that, you know, like they Red Cross have- volunteers have been sent instructions on how to handle like uh, basically prospective civil unrest next week. Um, and, you know, like, I mean, I guess the thing with Walmart, you know, to take it with a grain of salt, like they don't sell the kinds of guns that you use to kill people with. Um, they sell, really? yeah, they, they sell like hunting. They sell the kind of guns equipment. you can use to kill people with. Yeah, right. You can, but, but, you can hunt a deer, you can hunt a person. Yes. But I guess they, they don't hunt the one, they, they don't sell the ones that like uh, you use for mass shootings. They sell like 22s and uh, like 22 calibers, which are are not the ones that you use to shoot a mob of people. And uh, like the small grain shotgun pellets that you use to shoot birds with and stuff. Um, they're they're not they're not shoot they're not selling the kinds that you can use easily to take to a a nightclub and shoot fifty people, um, or at least kill fifty people. You can shoot people with twenty two, but they're not they're small bullets. Um, yeah. Again, it's totally doable to kill people with them, but it's not the one it's not the weapon of choice for people who want to kill people with guns. All right. Yeah, I guess it's not it's not really a armed conflict sort of weapon. That said, though, I mean, just keep in mind what this still means is that, like, you know, somebody has decided, oh, yeah, uh, things have gotten uh, insane enough to where uh, we don't we don't want to risk uh, putting these out on the shelves at our stores right now. Um, it's just a yeah, it's weird time to be alive. Walmart man. Would be one of the worst places to be. <laughs> just be Walmart employees trying to protect themselves. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's so down, it's going to be here. <laughs> Shit always goes down at Walmart. That's where they store the toilet paper in the Walmarts. So yeah, due to due to I guess haha, I said due to. Uh due to the general anxiety and malaise and stuff, uh we we like had a hard time getting our shit together. So instead of like having a single unified topic, I just came up with a bunch of stuff that grabbed my attention in the last week and thought maybe I would throw it out there for us to bat around for a while if uh if you guys are down for that, that cool. sounds fun. I've got some stuff that I grabbed. Sure. I've, I've got one quick thing just to, to shout out that uh, we have been requested by one of our awesome patrons, Lucas, to, uh, I hope I'm saying that right, um, to do an episode on immortality research. Uh, the I, I feel like this, this deserves more than like my uninformed speculation, so we're going to put that off until next episode where we have a couple weeks to do some homework and actually form uh, informed opinions. So... That will be, that's my, that's what I'm bringing to the table this week. <laughs> yeah. So look forward to that. If you, you know, are also feeling malaised and want to hear about something other than Trump and COVID. I want to say too, if you are feeling malaised and want something fun to do, we are doing um, the, uh, we've got a role on the Bayesian conspiracy server for, uh, what do you call it? Uh, um, among us. And uh so if you if you're looking for people to play with and it's a lot more fun to play with people online like that you know over voice um oh, yeah. you can j- jump on this jump on the Bayesian conspiracy server uh go to the actually i don't know if the welcome page has a bot for adding the imposter role or not but just at me and i'll i'll either make the make the robot or add you manually and that way when someone jumps on to the what land parties channel and pings imposters you'll get a ping and you can play with people and it's a lot of fun so yeah it's that's my team. my that's what I've been using to treat malaise is playing video games. As long as I'm rambling about that, 
uh, Ghost of Tsushima is a game that I played a few months ago when it came out, and the the single player was amazing. And they launched like two weeks ago uh, an online mode that is so uh, like broad and well done and uh, versatile that I can't believe they didn't charge another sixty bucks for it. It's amazing, and they totally could have. Um, it's just uh, anyway, it was free, free update if you have Ghost of Tsushima, and if you don't, you can still buy it for sixty bucks. But the online version of that is awesome. I've been enjoying the Tell hell out of it. Tell me about this game. Like, why would I enjoy it? Oh, uh, like, so the online is different than the, the single player. Uh, in a nutshell, um, it takes place in the age of the samurai. They're fighting off a Mongol invasion. And I played it coming off of um, Last of Us 2. And so this this had, like, uh, the, the gameplay is never stops being challenging, but it's it's you're able to master it and actually get good at it and then really enjoy it. It never stops being rewarding either. It's not like Dark Souls where you ju- it's just you super meat bull your way into the enemy over and over so you memorize their movesets. It's just a lot of fast timing, a lot of, okay, how do I go against this person? Um, it, it's a game that requires a lot of uh, like quick thinking and strategizing while in the middle of a fight or approaching one. You can uh, coordinate things, you can set things up. Um, and then like the game is just pretty and, and fun and has a fun story. Uh, so in the non-combat moments too, it's also really enjoyable. And, uh, what, what like genre is this? I'm having a hard time picturing this. Uh, RPG with katanas. It's, did you ever play it? Okay. I didn't play it myself, but it looked a lot like the, um, first person fighter kind of thing, like, um, Ninja Gaiden. No, I think this is, uh, more like. You know, if, if you miss hit a button, you're going to take damage, and damage is severe. It's not like just a smash the square button until the enemy's dead kind of thing. Oh, okay. Um, it's like, I mean, to go, I don't want to rail on it for too long, or not rail on it, but I don't want to uh, hammer home how great it is for too long, because I don't want to suck up the whole episode. But, like, there are enemies with, uh, you know, there are brute enemies, like the big heavy ones. There are ones with shields, one, ones with spears, and ones with swords. And there are four different stances that you learn that you can... One stance is good against shields. One stance is good against uh, spearmen. And you can switch immediately in the middle of combat without pausing the game. I think you hold like left trigger and triangle to switch to the spear fighting stance or something. And so while you're fighting a group of enemies and one's coming out with the spear, you quickly switch to the spear fighting stance and then counter that move and take the guy out and then switch back to the sword fighting stance. But it's it's just really engaging. Um, check out YouTube and watch 10 minutes of gameplay and check it out. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. There's also a girlfriend reviews on the uh, game. <laughs> so if you're like, if you're like me and like that channel. Although she does not say, yeah, yeah, yeah. She says, hold up a minute. That's right. <laughs> That's the hold up a minute. You're running my catchphrase. <laughs> nice. Okay. Uh, I don't know. Should I throw one of them out there or what? I think Jason's going to say something before I interrupt it with video game stuff. Oh, that's right. No, no. I, Sorry. Was, I was saying that I also have stuff that we could that I found that was cool. I don't know. I could, I could throw a thing out, but it... sure. Do it. Um, there's a last post that I really enjoyed. Uh, it's Katya Grace, the bads of ads. Did either of you see this one? Uh, maybe it doesn't sound familiar on the title name of it. It's just about, um, it's first of all, like the best breakdown of why advertising is terrible. Like, oh, I did see this. Okay, yeah, the saturation of advertising and but it really like it, it breaks it down like all the different ways that it just makes life less good. <laughs> and uh talks generally about like attention theft 
and then at the end about what good and ethical advertising might look like. <laughs> I um, First of all, this is like near and dear to my heart because I hate ads and rant about them all the time, especially the way that they're just shoved in your face so much. Yeah, the ones specifically that are designed to to grab your attention when you don't want to divert your attention are the ones I really hate. Yeah. Like well, when, um, back in the day when uh, TV was a, still a thing and you sat down to watch TV, you knew there were going to be commercial breaks. So you knew when to go and like leave the TV or mute it or whatever. Like that was just part of the deal. But when things are just like there to to interrupt your thought process or what you're already doing and try to take your attention. It's like you're, you're literally taking the thing that I use to fuel my life. And I don't appreciate that. Yeah, Auto playing uh, videos with the sound on websites. Oh, murder is what those people deserve to happen to them. I guess that's an exaggeration. No, but it, it is almost, it's an understandable exaggeration because I don't quite know what possesses them to think this is a good idea. Like I disable it or I leave the site and I never come back. Like, this is not something that the users enjoy. I don't know. Speaking of annoying things, that's on the list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I like this line. Stepping back, uh, or no, it was, uh, sometimes I fantasize about a future where stealing someone's attention to su- uh, for the 14th time that they, to suggest for the 14th time they watch your awful looking play is rightly looked upon as akin to picking their pocket. Yeah. Um, but the thing that... Actually, I wanted to say about this was something somebody pointed out in the comments because it was about podcasts. Uh, it was user mad <laughs> saying, uh, I put my money where my mouth is. I support ad free podcasts uh, with unlockable ad free versions on Patreon. This podcast uh, brought to you by VP- NordVPN. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> that no, exactly. Thing? That's what they start talking about because they're saying that, uh, first of all, it bothers them that they, we, we've been. Con- conditioned to accept ads as the price of the internet and not have their precious time taken up with podcast hosts, AKA people I trust telling me about how much they love, whichever meal box kid is paying them this year. Mm-hmm. And then uh, they, they talk about a time they emailed a podcaster they listened to when her podcast ran an ad for a product that they knew she wouldn't support if she knew some easily Googleable backstory and she emailed them back, pulled the ad, and said, oh, I didn't use the product. I didn't know that it was bad. And then uh, Mad goes on to say, well, obviously, you know a lot of these endorsements are fake, but I find podcasts especially insidious as the podcaster-listener relationship is surprisingly intimate. And like, I, I, I rarely hear like tepid endorsements um, of anything on podcasts. Most of them that I listen to don't have ads. Uh, so I get by with very few. Like The Joe Rogan Experience opens with like, like six or eight minutes of ads, but it, he is nice enough to pre-record them and put them at the very beginning. So you just hit the skip forward button 20 times and then you get to start the actual episode. Um, it's the ones where like partway through, uh, like a uh, very bad wizards does this, but they, they do it like in a self-aware way, but is still kind of annoying um, where they'll be talking and be like, Oh yeah, man, I've been so tired lately. That's why I got this cool mattress. And uh, <laughs> then that's, that's their plug for whatever. Right. Um, so it's kind of funny how, uh, that that all pans out but yeah the um, fact that some people manage to do it well still like i still find it weird that it it's sort of just it's unfortunate that this is a money-making you know strategy that works for people who are making some or all of their income podcasting where clearly like they're providing a valuable experience for people but 
<laughs> what the hell does like Blue Apron or uh, she named say brand names like have to do with I don't know uh, some like our tabletop RPG podcast? Uh, it's just I don't know. <laughs> I think yeah, Inia, you actually had uh, on your blog like years ago, probably at this point. But I remember there was an article you wrote about uh, like being pro targeted ads, where you like I'd rather have you know ads sure. that actually like might be something that I might want to buy that like pertain to me personally. There's uh, been a couple ads I ran into that were really handy. They were telling me yeah. that someone that I really loved was coming through town. I was like, oh hell yeah, I'm gonna go see him. Thanks, ad. But uh, yeah, I thought that experience rare. too. I mean, like, but there's privacy issues, which are like a whole other subject. But yeah. that was something else that Katya was talking about in the uh, original post, where it's like, you know, could I? Uh, let me just read the last. <laughs> Uh, sentence, the last couple sentences of this. What would good and ethical advertising look like? Maybe I decide I want to be advertised to now and go to my preferred advertising venue. I see a series of beautiful messages about things that are actively helpful for me to know. I can downvote ads if I don't like the picture of the world that they're feeding into my brain or the apparent uncooperativeness of their message. I leave advertising time feeling inspired and happy. <laughs> Aww, that would <laughs> be like, awesome. Yeah, but it is just sort of like it's not like people don't want to buy things. I don't know. It's just it seems like it's just the coordination problems with with marketing are so bad. There's got to be a better way to do this stuff. Well, there's that great documentary put out by uh, Tristan Harris, who was on Sam Harris's podcast a couple of times. He was like the director of like ethics at Google or something. I forget the exact title that he had there. Um, but the YouTube or not YouTube Netflix documentary is called The Social Dilemma, where it talks about the like digital avatars that are built by every activity you do online um, that not just curtails ads to you, but curtails like certain permissions and uh, offers and stuff to you in particular. Um, It's, it's rather insidious and more like, cause I'd recommend just listening to the, uh, the episode he did on Sam Harris's podcast a month or two ago. Um, It was a lot of fun. And Harris played the part of like the, uh, the devil's advocate. And he's like, well, what's so wrong with, you know, I like seeing an ad for, Oh, I didn't know this author put out a new book. I like, you know, it's nice to get that information. And he's like, sure, but it comes at a big cost. And so, uh, I, I found that whole conversation really valuable and I didn't actually watch the documentary cause I'm already sold on it, but I will one of these days when I feel like being bummed out. So, uh, probably in a little while, if, if things stop being less shitty and I have less to be bummed about already, then I'll sit and deliberately bum myself out watching this. Oh man, deliberately bumming yourself out is not tight. <laughs> I, I think uh, at least one person I trust said that they thought it was like pretty bad and pointless. The social dilemma, uh, Wes, maybe I don't know. I haven't seen that it myself. Like Wes would say, "We love you, bud." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a Wes thing. I was thinking that too. Chrissy <laughs> <he> hated it. <laughs> uh, okay. But that maybe he has my, good reasons. I, uh, I bet there's some, there'll be some found. discussion that maybe I can follow. Oh, yeah. Well, in that case, um, talking about bumming yourself being not tight, uh, the next thing I was going, or the first thing I was going to throw out was that um, I've kind of, uh, I, I was listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe recently, speaking about, you know, podcasts that we listen to and that sometimes pimp stuff for money because they need to pay bills. Um but in a very recent episode, Steve Novella, who's the primary host, was going off about pessimism and how pessimism sucks. And like what he said really struck a chord with me because 
I have been for, I don't know, several months now on The Mind Killer, um, which is a different podcast where we specifically do talk about politics. And it's, I mean, it's fun. I enjoy hanging out with those people and and I feel more killed. informed. Yeah, and getting <laughs> my mind killed, right? But um, always after I do this, I just, I feel like, what, how is the government existing as it does? And, and, and the, um, one of the co-hosts, David, is very much a, this is the dumbest timeline. The government is terrible. What did you expect? It's, it's always, it's a kind of pessimistic look on things. And like, I'm not trying to shit on David. He's cool. He's a cool guy. Um, and we have a lot of fun, but like more and more, I've been feeling like the why do we even bother having our government? It is awful. If you always expect the worst thing, you'll generally always be right. And just in general, I've been feeling not like I did when I was a teenager, when I was like, hell yeah, if we can like all coordinate and get together and work together on these problems, we can fix our issues. And I've just been having more of a feeling of like pessimism. And and Steve Novella pointed out that like pessimism leads to accepting things that suck because well, that's just the way things are. Of course, you know, everything's awful. Of course, the government's incompetent. And Steve was saying, no, we should do, don't be pessimistic. Don't accept things. If something isn't good, that is a problem. And you should rage against the machine and go down fighting and screaming because, because that just, as, as much as pessimism feels like the wise thing to do because it's who, you know, it's, um, a correct interpretation of the world, maybe, maybe not. It it leads to things being worse in the end. So it is a losing move to uh, to just be pessimistic as it brings you to accept crap. I don't know. What do you guys think? I it's think hard that, because. Sorry, go ahead, Jace. Um, you said you actually said I think that uh, pessimism is like there's. It seems sort of wise because like maybe it's a more realistic view of the world, but like sort of the meaning of pessimism is being pathologically uh, negative about things. Yeah, but what if you are accurately negative about things? Well, I think there's a difference between reviewing the facts and choosing to be like, okay, like, well, first of all, you can interpret what, <laughs> there's, there's so much to unpack. Like, I think it may be actively beneficial to be pathologically positive. To yeah, surround yourself uh, with My Little Ponies and Steven Universe and, like, always see the good in stuff. Well, that's, like, sort of... There's a difference between, I think, um, first of all, like, deluding yourself about reality. But if you're... I don't know. If you're looking at the news and you're only... Like, a, the thing I always point out is that the news is uh, deliberately, like, cherry-picking stories that they that have like been focus tested to be as basically attention grabbing as possible. It's more of the sort of attention theft thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when like larger global data about the world shows things getting better. Uh, but we like, but if you focus on all the stuff that's bad and you over-focus on that and you discount the positive uh, repeatedly, you, you do train yourself to just expect the worst case scenario to always happen and you lose your motivation because you don't feel like you have any control over your life, over your outcomes, or that like humanity as a whole can do anything right. 
humanity's doing like really cool stuff all the time. But like when we start looking at, you know, oh, politicians are stupid and I can't believe this is happening and like everything's so bad. It's like, is this really worse than like the dark ages? Yeah. Is Trump in office and like saying like COVID, 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 all everybody talks about is COVID. It's over already, you know, like, <laughs> but the thing is that like we're working on vaccinations and treatments and if you think about, you know, bubonic plague or um, other, you know, historical pandemics and compare it to now, yeah, compare our situation to theirs. I mean, we're so much more informed. There is so much more that we can do. Part, part of me finds individuals. Yeah. Like part of me finds uh, solace in that kind of perspective where, you know, the, 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 the Steven Pinker style, uh, you know, things are a lot better than they historically have been. Like, that's all great. But then it's, it's on the one hand, you don't want to use that as to saying, therefore, we don't have to push harder and keep going. And you also don't want to say like, well, you know, it was way worse 500 years ago back when a splinter would give you uh, an infection and you die. Or, yeah, so therefore, um, shut up you, you, and stop, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure what the formal fallacy name is for that, but I call it the starving kid in Africa fallacy. Yeah. Um, but, and like in this case, the starving kid was, you know, our, our poor ancestors. But um, like the... I guess, yes, even now in the state of the United States with over a quarter million dead from fucking this particular uh, pandemic, um, it like, yes, is that better than bubonic plague? Probably sure, definitely. But like the point is, is like we as a species are capable of doing better. You know, I think Australia last month had no cases. Um, like the, the, the it is possible for our species to do better. And so, like, then watching our our neighbors and community not is infuriating and drives me up the fucking wall. Um, so, and I'm not trying to to put down the the positive note you're bringing up so hard. It's just like I, I don't want to use any excuse to say like, well, no, but it could be worse because sure, yeah. but that doesn't help, right? That's not what I'm trying to do either because I can imagine sort of coming to the conclusion of like, well, everything sucks. So, what's the point of trying? both as like, or rather, um, backup. Uh, I think it's bad to, yeah, get, get, make yourself really depressed by how, like, you know, focusing on the negatives or anything and then being like, well, what's the point? I'm going to watch Netflix and not go out and vote or whatever. Or, um, but also you don't want to just like be like, oh, everything's great. <laughs> There's nothing to worry about in the world. I think just it's, it's the thing of discounting the positive, uh, which like the thing that it's not be, being a pessimist isn't having a more like accurate view of reality, but being able to look at, okay, there's positives and negatives here. And yeah, it, like that, that, that gets you out of either being pathologically like, you know, uh, anchored on everything's fine. So I don't have to do anything about it or everything sucks. So I'd like, so why bother doing anything about it? <laughs> it's like a, are, are you using, I guess, sort of are you using the way that you view the world to motivate yourself like in a in a healthy way for yourself and for the species or it you know are you kind of binging on outrage porn and then getting depressed and (laughs) watching netflix that's a good Uh, point i think that that toes the line a lot more than i was giving it credit for i think i just had a knee-jerk reaction to it i thanks for the the clarification yeah sorry i i'm trying to like articulate something that I'm having a really hard time articulating, but it's more like the, the point of, I think rationality is actually like, you know, 
let's look at both sides of this thing. Like, let's not discount the positives, but also like, let's, you know, be aware that the negatives exist and then just make like the best decision based on the data and not based on like what my emotions are doing right now or, and that's uh, (laughs) so many things. It's not to say you shouldn't take care of your emotions either. I mean, that's, I think super important as well. And I hear what you're saying. Uh, I think my, my inner David Spearman is saying, Thank you. <laughs> no, you're, you're good. Uh, I think it's uh, my inner David Spearman is saying like, my emotions aren't playing a role. I'm just making accurate predictions. I assume everything will be dog shit. And lo and behold, I'm right. 99% of the time. Does that sound like I'm channeling pretty well? <laughs> I, I would say that is not inaccurate, <laughs> but I think that like on the one hand you can, there, you know, just to, as of all things, this goes back to methods of rationality. You can take the quarrel perspective and say, yep, so everything's fucked and fuck everybody. Or you can take the hairy perspective and say, so yeah, we've got to stay here and fight and make this better. I think, I don't know. I, I, I've been personally been finding myself espousing the pessimism thing a lot more than I used to and would like to. And it's, it's been like negatively impacting me. So I need to find some way to start uh, surrounding myself with more positive things, even when it feels like a stupid saccharine thing to do. Yeah. Well, that's sort of the taking care of your emotions part of that too. Um, And also I need to like specifically stand up and say things like, you know what? Sure. It's dog shit right now, how it's done, but it could be done better. And someday we will do it better. I think it's also worth saying, okay, like this is bullshit right now. Uh, However, like, first of all, let's give ourselves credit for the fact that we are doing X, Y, and Z things that, like, we weren't able to do in the past. And then also we're learning about all the ways we failed this time and, like, people are going to be more prepared in the future, know what to do differently, better, et cetera. Yeah, I think part of it, like, with, uh, you know, like the Steve Novella, you know, don't don't give in a cynicism and, you know, stay up and fight, rage against the machine. Like, my rage against the machine tank is empty, right? Like... Part of it is just gets it get you get so burnt out on this. Uh, I'm sure there's a word for it, you know, Trump fatigue or something. Um, but <laughs> I guess it, it to, to Jace's point, I, I like I like the way you're putting it. That you know, it's it's uh, you you can take solace in the fact that like things are better than they were without saying we can't do better. And like the other thing too, you know, I was thinking about this when oh, for fuck's sake, this impeached fraud president got three Supreme court seats that like, you know, yes, worst case scenario. I remember when he nominated her and this was obviously going to go through because of course, um, like, yeah, this could end badly and it could, you know, make the United States less comfortable for a few decades. But hopefully my, my view is that like in the long run, uh, how does Scott Alexander put it that like, uh, you know, the, the, I, I forget, he paints this picture in the, uh, Moloch essay, but like, you know, history might have, might swing different ways, but it always moves left. Like we're, we're, we are historically always on an upward trend with the occasional setback. Sure. But like in a hundred years, we'll be better than we are now. Almost definitely. Right. Or at least if you were to base on historically, uh, things have been getting better. Right. Yeah. So, so setbacks aside, I think we'll, st- we're still moving forward. Yeah. Uh, we still have the, capability of moving forward also i think that there's something about sort of just like also i guess believing in humanity's 
like potential to be good and to be competent where maybe that is sort of like the having blind faith or whatever thing. Thank you. I think, I think that's what my problem was. I was, I was losing my, my faith that humanity even had the potential to do good and do better. That like, I was, everything always seems to reduce to status games and, and this zero sum fighting over, over, petty shit and and i need to stop stop thinking that yeah like because what's everything you're like everything always that those are actually like sorry those are things that are literally false i know i I mean uh this is like really uh i'm trying to find this cbt article that i was i'm gonna just give up because i've been really inarticulate while I've kind of half of my brain is trying to say podcast words and half of my brain is trying to figure out where I put the link. Uh, but this is like literally um, how you use CBT to to combat depression and anxiety by catching when you have these thought distortions of like always never discounting the positive uh, catastrophization and, and realizing like uh, Can you quickly say what CBT stands for? Because there's at least three uh, different things that cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay, thank you. Uh, not not CBD. Not to be confused with the non psychoactive cannabinoid <laughs> or whatever the other one is. The other uh, one was cock and ball torture. Ah, well, <laughs> I know I can at least advocate the CBD. Uh, I I went off benzodiazepines entirely with a CBD tincture. Oh, okay. Not yeah. CBT. No. <laughs> Actually, uh... Well done, Yash. Thanks for putting a smile on my face. This was kind of grim. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. Yeah, when you were getting to a dark place, I was actually also about to read you. Uh, this is a super tangent, but, like, really quick. I was... Since I was homesick from uh, my, like, partner's Halloween party yesterday, I was playing around with uh, AI Dungeon, the GPT, I think it was GPT two at that point, right? Uh, sort of interactive adventure game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people had written some Halloween scenarios, and there was this clip from one that I found that is just excellent. Uh, you walk towards the kitchen before you hear the doorbell ringing. It's probably your father returning from work, says your mother. He always comes through the front door. You nod and walk towards the front door. You open it up to find a man standing on the porch. He has a large gut and thinning blonde hair. His brow is furrowed, and he has a confused look on his face. Hello, he says. I'm your father. I came through the front door. <laughs> I know, you reply. I'm not stupid. <laughs> awesome. It's me. I came through the front door like I always do. This sounds like a like an alien replaced your father. <laughs> yes. It's actually like, yeah, it does create this spooky feeling, but I just love the playing with uh you know baby ai how it'll be like really lucid sometimes then sometimes <laughs> it's like, this is why humans are like great mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah uh humor is really good for combating stress depression anxiety Heck so yeah. yeah and also like cute animal videos uh the great exactly breaking the same show. thing but yeah <laughs> They did Japanese uh, week this weekend. It was awesome. Oh man, I might need to see if I could find that. It's on Netflix, most recent episode. Oh nice, okay. I have to remember that. Um, 
So were you? Uh, I was going to say you were. I just as you were um, reading weird stuff. I remember you were going to tease us with some kind of time travel thing. Oh, okay. Now I'm looking for another link. Okay, it's not time travel. Uh, it's this. Well, the article is on Psychology Today. I found it as just like a Google recommendation, which like sort of in the theme of targeted ads, Google's pretty good at suggesting me articles, sometimes too good, because definitely I was uh, supposed to be doing my like programming boot camp, <laughs> which is nothing <laughs> I can talk about. But instead I was reading shit like this. In the time of Tachysensia, which I will link so that people can read this, but apparently the psychologist uh, wrote an article called, is there such a thing as tachysensia? And then received dozens of feedback messages with stories of tachysensia bouts, along with comments claiming that there's no such thing as tachysensia. What is tachysensia? So it's is that sense of time. Yeah. Uh, people get apparently like, and it usually comes up when in reference to like PTSD, uh, fevers, migraines, stress, fear, anxiety, uh, this, frightening like weird feeling of time going really fast or really slow oh yeah and it's apparently like if it exists which uh i have i have experienced this or at least i think i have Mm -hmm. um the part of your brain that like creates a feeling of things being consistent and logical you know time following time sort of passing at at the same rate (laughs) uh gets can get messed up there's uh, a couple quotes. So, uh, I felt like I was in a tunnel with a person approaching me, the same person, many times over and over again at great speed. I would hear a clock on a wall ticking so loudly as I saw the second hand whipping around. It sounded like someone was hitting a giant bell with a sledgehammer. I'm standing on an escalator going up, but the people on the down one to my right are descending five times as fast. The surroundings around me appear to move fast as if someone pressed fast forward on a movie. <laughs> Like, all of this sounds stuff that would be terrifying if you didn't know why it was happening, but, like, really enjoyable if you'd taken some drugs and were expecting it. Yeah, I was going to say, first of all, this sounds like things that people experience on psychedelics. Uh, Distortion or dilation of time, I think, is, like, something that is consistently reported as one of the side effects or intentional effects (laughs) of some recreational drugs. And Well, it's different when you're doing it on purpose. Yeah, I mean... It could still be really scary. I had actually um, an experience with this, which, what I think is the same thing, when I accidentally combined drugs that should not be combined. And the way that the psychiatrist explains this is in line with the like surfing uncertainty uh, predictions all the way down model of how your brain works. But I remember before I even read that article or knew anything about that model, um, one time I was at this, I was at an anime con and then I like, I took some drugs that shouldn't be mixed, uh, and had like one beer, but like, it was really scary actually, because it was early in the day, uh, when we arrived at like, I don't know, 10 AM or something. I like took some prescription drugs and like, uh, some And then like that night we were eating dinner and I had one beer and then suddenly it was just, uh, I started experiencing time as just like, a bunch of saccades or like still snapshots oh, neat. with all the space in between that. Like I, I think is actually the, 
the stuff that your brain fills in to make it seem like there's this uh, consistent pattern or this, uh, you know, okay, this happens and then this must happen. And this person was walking across the room at this time. Like your, your brain's actually just like making all this shit up and filling it to get like, you know, piecing it together. And it seems really logical and consistent. Yeah. Unless you break that part of your brain and you realize how little sense experience you're actually getting from the environment and how much your brain is just like sort of making a hologram of what it thinks is going on. I don't know. I think it's really cool and also uh, something that I, I don't know, something I'm just like interested in lately. Yeah. And it would like, be, oh, go ahead. Uh, no, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just saying like, and since it's on drugs, you you always then you have to wonder like, is this because it is breaking down my brain's ability to fill in these details so I'm noticing it? Or is this because uh, the drugs are just making me think this is what normally happens when usually my brain is running just fine? Yeah, I don't know. I'm like, are you seeing the true functionings without this, the, 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 the artifice layered over the top? Or are you just having a malfunctioning period? Yeah, I mean, if you look at... Uh, MRI scans of the brains of people on psychedelics, which they, I know that they've done a lot of mushroom uh, scans. I'm not sure about other kinds, but what neurologically appears to be happening is that while normally parts of your brain will um, show active electrical currents that are associated with whatever tasks at hand or whatever you're processing, uh, all of your brain is just lit up on mushrooms. And so you experience what you're experiencing is actually the the loss of your ability to selectively focus to filter out information, which it's kind of interesting. I I'm, I also can't help but imagine like how easily a trip could turn bad sitting as at an MRI. Yeah, like it could be fun. <laughs> yeah. I actually don't mind the rhythm of it, and they tend to get really warm, which is nice. Um, <laughs> but it it could be a you know an odd experience for sure. I think it'd be hard to sit still. Some noise canceling headphones that played in some cool music and oh, maybe something above you. Yeah. Cause just just being inside that hollow metal tube would be awful. But if you got something to look at and something fun to listen to, it could be pretty good. Yeah, they usually throw on the the headsets that feed through uh, you know, whatever noise, but still an odd time. I gotta say, it, one of the most interesting things that happened from um, from taking LSD to me was, uh, you know how you have the the um, saccades with your eyes where they're constantly moving just a little bit mm-hmm. uh, and your brain edits it out, you never see it. Uh, I was coming down and I was looking out my back door at the power lines and I could see them jumping, like just little, boom, boom, little bounces. And uh, it took me a couple minutes to figure out what the hell was actually happening. But like when there was something interrupting my line of sight, like a, 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 a not a post, but you know one of those things in your window that goes up and down. Um, that just I don't know what the term for it, but like, like, yeah, yeah, the, the central thing that would break your line of sight. Like the jumps to the left and to the right of that were different and not in time with each other, even though they were uh, you know the same line. And I was like, oh, okay, I get it. I'm, I'm seeing the saccades. Like, I'm actually seeing the effects of my eyes jiggling a little bit all the time. Uh, and my brain is just failing to stitch it together into one seamless thing. That's really cool. Uh, but the neat part was, um, 
apparently some part of my brain got the message that these power lines are different from all other power lines. <laughs> <laughs> and so for the next three weeks, whenever I looked out there at those power lines, I could always see them, not nearly as much as when I was coming down off the LSD, but I could always see them jiggling just a little bit. And I was like, how long is it going to take for my brain to realize that these are just normal power lines again, and it should interpret them like all other power lines? And it took about a month, but but just the long-term effect of that, where it had really been ingrained in my brain that these power lines, you really got to just take them on face value. They don't stay still like all the other ones do. That's really was, funny. Yeah, that was neat. Yeah, so anyway, I want to link this article because it, I don't know, I found it to be a really fascinating read and it brought up a bunch of other questions about experiences that I've had. And um, I'm actually just curious to hear if other people in the community have experienced this sort of thing and to hear more people's experiences because they're they're really cool. Um, and I think that there's something really valuable about the experience of kind of getting a firsthand view of the, like your, your brain's abilities and then also like your brain's sort of limitations. <laughs> Uh, it's humbling. That's, that's my of, random thing. Okay. No, that's really cool. Some of my favorite action scenes, like both in novels and in movies, are things that try to portray that sort of thing where someone is under such stress that it breaks down those, uh, those normal brain functions. And uh, I remember Altered Carbon specifically had one in the book where he disassociates from himself. Uh, bullet times, yeah, that's a good one too. In in altered carbon, he disassociated from himself, and that was really fun to read. Where like he felt like he was trapped within him and just reporting on what his body was doing. Um, but I think that's one of the things that really got me into anime when I was younger, because in the '90s, like TV and movie budgets weren't nearly as big, and there were things you could do, but it was harder and not as not as realistic, whereas with anime, you can just literally draw whatever. So when someone is having a psychotic break, you could just draw what the shit is happening, and that was some intensely fun fun stuff to watch. I'm assuming you're talking about Evangelion. I mean, that is certainly one of the things I'm talking about, but there, it's it's a common thing in a lot of anime of yeah. that time period. Yeah, And maybe uh, still, I just don't watch nearly as much as I used to. That's uh, something that I liked about anime as well, but like, the I, I find that I always prefer to watch animated things than live action, uh, unless they do have like that incredibly high budget that you're talking about. Mm. And I think because like you're able to better portray emotional experiences. Yeah. Uh, even I know characters, the way they're designed. I mean, like a, <laughs> I've had to explain to people from like an art theory perspective, like, oh, why are they drawn so weird? And it's like, the eyes and the mouths are huge because you use them for expression. There's no nose because you don't use that for anything, so it's pointless data. hands <laughs> <Air laughs> on end and all the crazy, like, symbols and stuff appear in order to just better, like, communicate what this character's thinking and feeling and doing. It's very expressive. That's the point. I know a certain Scott Daly who would, who would argue with you intensely on that. <laughs> yeah, well, bring it on. Yeah different strokes i mean you know it whatever it's doing in animation uh it's we're not exactly as fine-tuned for that as we are for watching someone's actual face and so what was that (laughs) especially if we're autistic right uh but i'm just saying like it's it's fun to see like very subtle facial changes in human actors that are hard to get across in anime you know they'll zoom in on the person's eyes or something in anime and, and show them or whatever, but watching 
uh, I don't know. Some some good dramatic acting is is uh, also epic. Yeah, I uh, actually started watching The Office, and I was not able to watch The Office before because it stressed me out. It still stresses me out, but <laughs> in a like more enjoyable way now. And I honestly think that a lot of it had to do with just studying some, I don't know, being so exposed to real-time facial expressions and actually like doing the work of trying to analyze faces, which I did, uh, makes it more like, okay, now I know what's going on in this story now, whereas before it was just like people twitching their faces oddly. And I don't know, I, I couldn't tell what anybody was trying to express ever. And I was just like, yep, this is my experience with like being in an actual office and it's terrible. <laughs> oh, man. I tried to watch that show a couple of times and I can't get past maybe if I skip the first season or something, but I kind of hate uh, Michael Scott as a character. I hear he gets better, but he's just like to me, like the worst kind of boss and yeah. everything about like, he just exudes stress and I don't find it fun. That's what I've seen a hundred clips of the show. And a lot of it seems just genius and really funny. Um, there was a uh, better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's what I hear. I should give it another, Season another fair four, shake. Six. I like a lot of the gifts from it, but I, yeah, I agree. I watched uh, an episode or two and I'm like, I hate everybody on the show. Why would I bother watching them do things when I hate them so much? There's a great video. It, like they do a lot of cold opens where it's just like a sketch that doesn't go anywhere. Um, and there's one where, uh, shoot, I forget. Uh, John Krasinski, um, instead of him coming into his desk, cause he doesn't like uh, Dwight and they, they mess with each other. So instead of him coming in one morning, it's Randall Park. And he's just like, hey, Jim. Or he's like, hey, Dwight. And he's like, wait, you're not Jim. And he's like, of course I am. He's like, okay, if you're Jim, what deal did you close? And he's like, oh, you mean this one or this one? And he's like, no, no, you're not Jim. And he grabs the guy's picture off his desk, uh, John, John Krasinski's. I forget his name in the show. And he looks at it, and it's it's got Randall Park in there. And he's like horrified because he's like, oh, my God, I've been wrong this whole time. <laughs> uh Randall Park is Asian and John Krasinski isn't. That's why it was so dramatic. Oh, okay. Yeah. So it was just like, uh, it was a great, I mean, so like those little sketches I think are really funny. Like, you know, it doesn't involve anyone being as nutty as they usually are in that show. But I guess I'm not informed enough to talk about the rest of The Office. But I did have a question, Inyash. In yes. our, here's some random ideas to talk about. You had a couple of other things you wanted to, to get to. And I'm curious about the second two, because we talked about the, you know, Rage Against the Machine okay. stuff. Uh, so, all right. Uh, the One of the other ones is... Um, so this came up just by on the Discord watching, uh, again, Why We Cur. He's really coming up a lot in this episode, uh, talking about driving in Sweden. Um, it, it seems to me that if society makes a really big deal about something, it can really kind of screw up the practice of it for people. Because, like, in America, driving just isn't that big a deal. Like you, you get in a car, your family car with uh, someone in your family, and they kind of show you how to do it first in a parking lot, then in some like more abandoned streets. And, you know, over the course of a week or two, you pick it up and then you kind of drive badly and maybe you crash the car or get close calls or something. But, you know, everybody knows teenagers get more accidents and that's why their insurance rates are so high. Whatever. It's, it's not a big deal. You learn how to drive. And like in Sweden, apparently it's this huge thing where not only does it cost thousands of dollars for lessons, but like it's it's very rare for someone to pass their driving test on less than the fourth time. And when when uh, Yweeker was talking about it, he was like, "How do you merge onto a highway where all these cars are sipping past? Or like, how do you know that um, 
without that, all these tests, how do you know to check all your mirrors and look to your right before you start pulling out so you don't hit the bicycle pedestrian? Most people. He said, like, I know, but like he just said, like the the thing was the the way he said it, like he was taking the test and the instructor was like, "Oh, you didn't look right there. That's a dead bicyclist." And, and I was like, "Wow, holy shit!" Like it 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 seemed like it was such a big deal and so stressed and so stressful, I guess, in their society that it just the entire process of learning to drive seems to have become this this massive thing that it just doesn't really need to be. Uh, and I was trying- as someone who's lost people to car accidents, I actually think that people dying in traffic accidents is a big deal and that we should no, be I- driving seriously. I don't think Phineas right, was saying that we should take the acceptable loss of human life over how easy it is to get a driver's license. No, I, I, I don't <laughs> I'm think. i sure what your point is. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that it's not a big deal, but I think like they overstressed it to a rather ridiculous degree that like the way people yeah, were freaking out causes of death i mean like car accidents uh well yeah i mean yeah that is, that is one of the really big ones in the u.s well so we, we should look and see what the difference is between you know uh, the percentage of, of swedish car deaths versus american car deaths i mean if they're does it lead to better outcomes that's a good question i did not look yeah so it that, does. that would help settle it but i i am curious because like you know on my driver's test when we finished, he said, other than that stoplight, you didn't stop once, but here's your permission to go get your license. Um, <laughs> like, apparently, I came to a rolling stop at every stop sign. Uh, so, but he didn't care. And I, I do think it should be harder to get a driver's license. Uh, you know, it it's, there's definitely like a fine line, you know, should it be as hard to get a driver's license as it is a pilot's license? You know, should you need a thousand hours with uh, it probably don't need a thousand to get a pilot's license, but should you need hundreds of hours with a with a certified instructor in order to drive a car to get to work? Uh, I mean, unless there's going to be some enormous new government department that will enforce this, it's going to cost a fortune, and most people just won't be able to drive anymore. Which, like, if you live in uh, you know the middle of some some city, that's not a big deal. But if you live where almost everybody lives, you need a car just to get to work, right? Um, Dang it, I think Jace has just already convinced me that I was way too blasé about this, and maybe we should take this a lot more seriously. Well, both Jace and your particular anecdote about you failed horribly, but here's your license anyway. <laughs> so I, I think that, actually, like I have very strong feelings about this. We should have self-driving cars. Humans should never have been given the ability to drive cars. We're so bad at it. Yeah, absolutely. Every time I drive anywhere, and like, I guess it's hypocritical to be like, and like, you know, and I drive all the time, so I see all these terrible things, but... Nobody knows how to drive. Yeah. Like the whole, uh, yeah, I've definitely like remember the driver's test being kind of shitty, not covering a lot of things that like basically they were testing, like, can you turn the car on and sort of drive it around and mostly figure it, okay, you're fine. But I see people just, you know, merging without looking and cutting each other off. And especially like I see this a lot when I'm driving like towards Thornton area where one of my partner lives. I don't know what the deal is, if it's just coincidence that I happen to just see so many shitty vehicles, but, like, there was a day where there was a car in front of me falling apart. Like, I'm driving, and something that, like, just falls off the bottom of their car, a long piece of pipe. <laughs> oh, my God. It, and I had to actually, like, drive off the road a bit. Where Luckily, there was, like, a full two car lengths of uh, margin on the side of the road. Like, because uh, I was on the highway... <laughs> 
But like I had to keep dodging. Like the, uh, so I like pull up to this person who's still driving. I'm like, your car's falling apart. You might want to pull over. He's and he's gripping his steering wheel, looking straight ahead and doesn't like behave as though he's heard me and just keeps driving. But there's just so I, I like have relayed this story to a few people because I just find this baffling. Wow. <laughs> like, I don't know what was going on there. Um but yeah, that's the kind of thing that can just like happen when you're on the road. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I, I do still think like Sweden seemed like it's over exaggerated because I was hearing stories about not hearing stories. I, w- I was literally reading people saying like, how do you manage to stay in the lane when you can't see the tires and you know where the lines are and the road are? I'm like, you just you just from a little bit of experience you get the feeling of, you know, you know how it looks when you're in your lane while you're driving from your car from the driver's side. And I think another one that brought up was like parking. And I thought they were talking about parallel parking because, you know, that can be, um, if you don't know the algorithm, it's hard to figure it out on your own. Once someone teaches it to you, you're like, oh, okay, that's how you do it. But uh, before you've been taught the method, it's tough to figure out. But I guess it was even just like pulling straight into a regular parking spot. And I'm like, this just, this doesn't seem at all difficult. And I know Americans are reckless and bad at driving, but there's some things like staying in the lane and pulling in the parking lot that seemed really intuitive and easy from the, from pretty early on. Uh, yeah. Getting a sense of how big your car is, is the kind of thing you get sense of, but like first time in a new car, you might not get it exactly right. You know, like I once in a while will park my wife's car in our single car, little garage unit. And yeah, uh, she drives a uh, Subaru Forester, which on its side isn't actually all that big, all that much bigger than mine. It just feels a lot bigger because it's it's a taller car, um, yeah. and maybe a couple inches wider or something, but not not radically. But it's still like because the angles are all different. You know, when you're turning to angle into this thing, because you can't just pull straight in, given our the way our parking lot is all set up. Um, it's there's this you know moment every time where I'm like, am I gonna you know hit the bumper on the edge of the the garage here? And so far, not yet. But well, maybe this is a thing about like in Europe, a lot of people don't own their own cars. And so you're always driving some weird, strange thing. Whereas in America, you have one car that you intuitively get a feel of mm. after a few a bit of time. I remember it taking a very long time to get that feeling uh, when I first started driving. But like, I don't know, recently I've been driving a lot of moving trucks and it's definitely like a skill that you can build. Like it takes me couple of minutes behind the wheel of a new car to like get the feel of the dimensions and i feel like yeah, the first time like letting the, any random muggle with that i wish people knew right could relay in some way other than just do it a lot and get the experience yeah letting any random muggle with 20 bucks drive a, a commercial vehicle is kind of insane there's a great little clip on family guy you can <laughs> youtube uh family guy u-haul that summarizes it perfectly um but yeah, I mean, it, you don't need a commercial driver's license to rent a you know big U-Haul and drive this from wherever you want to wherever you want, right? Uh, it's it's surprising that I'm allowed, you know, I'm, I'm licensed to drive my little Honda, and then for whatever fifty bucks they let me borrow it for a day, some giant truck that is you know no rearview window and it's it's a whole different beast. But they're like, eh, you're moving, it's fine, go nuts. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> and, and just the amount of weight in it, especially when it's fully loaded, like is a drastic difference. You're like, holy shit, I got to start breaking a lot earlier in this thing. Right. Yeah. I've only driven a U-Haul a few miles once. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a different thing. I think the, the weight thing I was probably 
already in tuned with because I'm like, well, I got all my stuff in here balanced somewhat precariously in the back. I want to, you know, sl- you know, accelerate and decelerate fairly smoothly. But um, yeah, it's it's a nightmare. But I'm with Jace 100. We should not have apes driving cars. I think our descendants will look back at us and be like, why'd you guys do that for so long? You guys could have stopped doing it 15 years earlier. And we'll say, well, people threw a fit. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, yeah. When I was trying to think of of, uh, parallels to this, I was like, well, the U.S. is kind of that way about like sex and people losing their virginity. Like it's this (laughs) huge thing that people get all sorts of crazy neuroses about it when really it's probably a pretty small step between what you were doing before and the actual sex. Like people rarely jump in completely cold into losing their virginity. You've been like fooling around and kissing and doing lots of other stuff for weeks, if not months, if not years beforehand. It's hard to I mess mean, up so bad that you die in sex, sexual intercourse. Though. <laughs> I mean, people, it happens to old people, uh, but like, yeah, people mess up in their BDSM scene, but like, this is like, think about think the amount have, of regulations around getting a gun. You can kill so many people with a car so easily. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we have a lot of pathos, neuroses as a society in the U.S. based on how crazy we are about sex in general. Well, even just like turning 18 or turning 21, people act like they're these big watershed things. And you wake right. up on your 18th or 21st birthday realizing you don't feel any different than you did the day before. But there's just all this buildup about it. You know, maybe graduating high school is another one of those things where, you know, you're told it's this big dramatic thing and it's just not. Um, Am I the one that still feels like the exact same person I was when I was like in middle school? Like it's just one of those things that keeps occurring to me, like as I'm getting into my thirties where I'm like, is there ever going to be like a point where I feel like, okay, I'm an adult now. Adults. I hope I don't have that. (laughs) I, I finally, over the past two years have started to feel that a little bit, like even all the way up until I was 38 or something, I was like, yeah, I guess I have some gray hairs and some wrinkles, but I feel just like fucking teenage me. What the hell? But, um, I don't know. I, I think, I think specifically having, um, certain emotional betrayals in my life recently really did change my personality a bit. And I actually do feel older now. Like I, I trust people less. That's, you're correlating things I wasn't necessarily trying to correlate. I'm just saying, if you want to grow older, have someone betray you really bad. <laughs> I think there's also the one one way to feel a little bit like older and more competent is just like getting good at some adulting style things. Like yeah. once you can file your taxes, and it's not a stressful thing, or um, but that whatever sign up like, for new utilities or something. No, you that know? doesn't feel like adulting at all. That's just like a different form of homework. Like they. It, it, the teachers told me, you know, do these problems, <laughs> and then I get an A. The government says do these problems, and then I get some money back. It was it was literally the same thing. Fair enough, yeah. Anyway, I I, uh, I don't quite have that sense. So maybe my, my my metrics aren't 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 right. So, um, you know, I I, I don't ever want to feel like an adult, quote unquote, because in my childhood experience, adults weren't happy people, and so yeah. like. Uh, it, I want to be like, oh, if being an adult is like just, you know, being miserable or whatever all the time, fuck all that. I'm going to, you know, just do whatever I want all the time and stay happy. So I was going to say, like, a long term injury also helps with feeling older. But on the other hand, like, you've had back problems for far longer than I've had, and you still say you feel pretty much like a, a teen Steven, right? I mean, I don't know what teen Steven felt like. I mean, physically, I feel old, but like, since I guess I felt this way for so long, it's just how I am. But, okay. uh, <laughs> 
like my, I just mean like cognitively, I guess. And I, I'm probably modeling that off of, you know, bad archetypes, but yeah, I mean, just, uh, I don't know. I, I decided that like, nah, if, if, you know, being mature means like, I don't know, whatever, doing boring adult stuff instead of having fun and watching movies and playing video games, I'm just not going to do the boring adult stuff. Yeah. Forget all that. All right. What was the third item on your listing, Yash? It was confusing. <laughs> Oh, okay, right. The last thing was um, gatekeeping as a way of limiting new stakeholders. Um, <laughs> this came to me when I was uh, finding out about um, eviction law, because, you know, now that I rent a place out, that might become important. Uh, it It's weird to me, uh, like, how many laws there are uh, making it hard to get people out of a place that you live, like, even when they're actively doing bad things to it and not paying you any money. And um, really, it, it seemed to just came down to the fact that, like, once someone is somewhere, they kind of have a stake in it. And how, how well, I don't know how to put this exactly. Like, once people mix their own lives in with anything at all, they feel a sense of ownership and... Um, and and like they've invested in something and that's i mean that's accurate right uh another one that comes to mind is like i'm in uh, i'm the guild leader of a guild in world of warcraft right now and a lot of people uh i like ultimate i have ultimate say in who can come and who gets kicked out of the guild but you if you're in a guild for a few months you put in a lot of time and you've like you've dedicated some part of your life which you will never get back cuz we're all getting older and dying into into helping to build this thing and so it becomes like a really big deal to kick someone out even if you know legally the only they don't have any any right to stay and the whole the whole idea i guess seems to have been that like and and squatters rights are the same kind of thing like if you own some land and someone just like moves in to a building if you don't kick them out within a certain number of years it becomes their building uh, which just seemed like the strangest thing to me, but I guess like property rights are are delimited by the government in order to keep people from not killing each other, right? And that's what it is when someone feels like they have a stake in something or some place because they've mixed their own life with it, then uh, they might get angry. And just because the law says, "Oh, this is technically my car or my house or whatever, and you have to go out now. If they're like, no, I have been using and maintaining and living in this place for X number of years, I will fight you. I will, you know, maybe start a fire and endanger the neighborhood. I will maybe uh, attack someone violently. Uh, the government doesn't want that to happen. And so they take the, the, the interests of all stakeholders into account, even not necessarily people who have legal rights to stuff. And so, and so I kind of like, understood now why sometimes there would be um there would be an instinct to gate off uh communities or or social groups or whatever to not let new stakeholders just join willy-nilly uh because then once someone is in they do start mixing their life with stuff and getting investment in it and if you don't like what they're doing it can be really hard to dislodge them afterwards both from them fighting back perspective and even from like a legal perspective. So gatekeeping seems almost like a rational thing to do uh, in various situations. I don't know. This is just a random thought I was having. It is not well thought out. So I'm just kind of throwing it out there and wondering what you guys think. That's the theme of tonight's episode. Don't sweat it. 
Uh, I don't know. That's interesting. I, uh, I, I see what you're saying. Like you want a barrier to entry into things because uh, it, I guess makes it more, uh, it, it, it keeps out things that'll easily ruin the, the, or that could easily ruin the situation. Yeah. Is that a good distillation? Um, yes. Like, yeah. If someone joins a new community and they try to change the community norms a bit that might, you know, annoy everyone else there. But on the other hand, if they've been part of this community for a long time and contributing to it as well, then it's hard to just, you know, say, kick them out or ignore them. And that might be why you want to, you know, vet the people that you let join your community in the first place. I'm trying to think of any things that this can apply to. It seemed like, Jace, you had um, some uh, counter-argument uh, early on before I got going. Um, not really a counter-argument, but just... I wish that... I, I feel like probably there are people who are better equipped to talk about this because I'm weak on history and economics, but I believe that the eviction laws are so strict because there was a point before that that they were really heavily weighted or just maybe a hundred percent weighted like for the benefit of the landlord. And it, it was, it led to this like really oppressive or I don't know. I'm sure that there's also different opinions about this too, but yeah, there's, my, there's definitely abuses that can be that, that a landlord abuses of power can, can do, can, can exercise. So there definitely needs to be some protections to protect against that. Yeah. I mean, um, the other thing is like my experience is, my dad uh, is like a carpenter, but he also like started at, like when he was in his fifties or so, buying some investment properties, fixing them up, and trying to rent them. And then I also did this, uh, not the exact same thing. I like owned a house, lived in it, and rented out rooms to roommates. And some of my friends and coworkers also did this. And my experience, this is that I had, and that I always hear are of terrible tenants who are so protected by laws that you like can't get rid of them. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it can be as bad as like literally having someone living in your house who is like eating your food, not paying rent, trashing the place, <laughs> having parties there all the time or having their like various like creepy boyfriends come by and just giving them the key, like just all kinds, of, especially if you're living there too. But like mm-hmm. uh, my dad's, like renters regularly would like trash the place that he'd fixed up and it ended up costing more to fix it than like he had earned by having them as tenants. Uh, a coworker had a, it was like the, his and his wife's first house. And then they, they got another one when they had kids and they, they're like, well, we'll rent this one. And the person living there kept saying that they had medical bills, so they couldn't pay the rent, but they wouldn't leave. They went through the process of evicting them, which I think took years and the person was so mad that when they when they moved out, I think they broke all the windows and then also broke all of the pipes and let the lower floor flood with sewage. Jesus Christ. In order to get back at my coworker who, you know, owned the house and was still paying a mortgage on it. Is there no like way to get insurance against this? Because all this is making me want to know. never rent my place. It's it's a risky thing. I have learned well the um that and I didn't learn it precisely the hard way, but almost that you really, really got to be uh, very um, careful who you rent to. Yeah, like, you mentioned vetting people. Do serious vetting. Yeah. I think also probably contractual agreements. 
Like uh, I, I, I made the mistake of not making some of my like friends <laughs> pay or sign a uh, renter's notice. Mm, yeah. And then if if they, or it's what is it called? It might just be a renter's notice, something like that. There's some document, but then like apparently legally, if you don't have them sign an uh, agreement, renter's agreement, but you've let them live there for a certain amount of time, then that means that like legally they now have a, a stake in it. And so you can't kick them out even if you own the house because it's like, well, you invited them here and they weren't paying rent before. So you can't just suddenly start charging them rent. It's like, so other Okay. <laughs> so then you have to prove that they've done something bad. That sounds like madness. I'm, I'm with you. It's like, I'm sure that there's madness. There's probably some really justifiable back reason for how things got to be this way. But, uh, you know, because like you said, uh, tyrannical uh, landowners or uh, landlords or whatever, but. Uh, certainly the state of affairs as it is sounds just totally untenable. Um, I feel like it's one of those things like um, universal basic income where I'm just sort of like, if we have these like societies, it would be cool if they could guarantee people at least like somewhere to live and food to eat, like close to where, like it seems, I don't know if we want to live in a society where we're pro human flourishing, maybe give people the basics of like literally the ability to survive. But I don't know, maybe I'm just insane. Yeah, you get out of here with that pipe dream. Come on. We didn't have to defend ourselves against ourselves all the time. But <laughs> we have to hack human psychology in order to... Oh, my God. Uh, I'm mean, getting, like, four or five, like, phone calls from uh, elected or, uh, like, representatives of elected officials. Are, are you guys getting those? Well, I voted, right like, now. a month ago. They need to get off my back. Yeah, someone called during the recording, too. But we only have a few more days people, to look forward to. Or no, this will be the third. I, I just have my phone nearby and I'm going to actually just go like, I'm going to place it on the bookshelf. Okay. <laughs> well, you know what? That actually brings us full circle to the beginning of, of the episode and we're a couple hours in, so we can wrap up here. Oh my God, more. yeah. Uh, yeah, we probably should at that point. I just wanted to like kind of end up saying that gatekeeping sort of seems, it has a very bad um, bad connotations nowadays. It is not a popular thing. And in general, I was always against it as well. But I have come to see lately um, its practical applications as like a sort of self-defense thing. And maybe it isn't all bad. Yeah, no, I hear you. I think that's a bigger topic um, than we have time for or that, you know, or brain for. But I'm glad you got me thinking about that because definitely there's, I think, ways that the model of economic like you know renter uh landlord relationships and the politics around that like has parallels with the community gatekeeping that you seem to be sort of paralleling it to but i'm sure that there's differences well I mean, like, we should have t- we should have time to get to everything if we all live to be immortal which will be the subject of our next episode yes. so. <laughs> you could listen to us talk forever if you wanted to forever yeah. and ever and ever Oh, God. Yep. That was already terrifying. All right. <laughs> Who is our awesome patron we're thinking this week? I got last episode. Oh, uh, I think it was me. I Looks like this time we are thanking patron Mark M. And Mark. I made a clapping like gesture, but just came short of clapping into the <laughs> microphone, which would have been a nightmare for everybody. Mark, thank you very much for your patronage. You are helping everybody who listens to the show get it without ads, which we all hate yeah. because... They're terrible. I was just going to like reference the bads of ads thing where honestly, like it's because of people like Mark that you guys don't have to listen to us talk about our like really excellent mattress. 
<laughs> and why Mark it's the and most rational a bit. choice. <laughs> yeah. And Mark and I have chatted a bit on Patreon and, uh, you know, seem like a cool dude. Uh, glad to have you uh, as a listener. It makes me feel awkward to talk to somebody I tangentially know um, in this <laughs> medium. But, uh, you know, uh, we say the same thing every week, but it doesn't make it any less uh, meaningful. We appreciate everything. Uh, and, you know, being a, you know, like we just bought new um, uh, microphone stands, what, two weeks ago? Because other ones were four years old and they'd been through some some moves and gotten pretty beaten up. And one of them, the super glue finally broke on it. So it was time to finally buy new ones. And uh, that's all possible thanks to listeners like you. So thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Mark. All right. All right. Anything else to hit on this one or are we all set? I think we're good. All right. We'll see you guys in a couple weeks. Cool. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.